Hey y'all, this is Unbound Love. The meandering conversation of two pastors. We are, I am Gail Tabor. And I am Kelly Allers. And we are, um, we've been doing this for, I think this is our fifth or sixth time. Yes. And uh, so excited that today we're doing something new, although maybe Wild Goose qualifies as having a guest on because we, we had a lot of people uh, answer a question for us at Wild Goose. But we, for the first time, have someone actually here with, can we call this a studio? It's my office. We're going to call it the studio. But here in the studio with us. And uh, so very excited about um, having having a real life person here with us today. Yes, um, actually, three years ago this very week, our little community came into contact with Hurricane Florence, which devastated our community, flooded us, turned us into an island where people couldn't get in and out, and was probably the biggest natural disaster to hit our area in the last fifty or sixty years. And during that time several in our community found out that certain high influential neighborhoods were getting lots of things like tarps and water and resources but our immigrants refugees and lower income people were not so we joined bands with several organizations and decided to change that and learned our way through handling a natural disaster and trauma in that i was honored and excited to meet kat polk who was the director of the Global Connections Refugee Resettlement Support Group. Huge name and title. And as the hurricane died down, the connections kind of fell apart. But she kept doing the hard on-the-ground work. And she spent a lot of time, because we weren't getting a lot of refugees coming in, actually working with the refugees in this area. But all of that has recently changed with what's happened in Afghanistan and she's here to talk to us about it. Welcome, Kat. Thank you. It's nice to be here today. So, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you into deciding you want to actually work and reach out to refugees? Yeah, I actually started just as um, an involved community member. As a volunteer, I signed up to volunteer with Interfaith Refugee Ministry um, and then also the Cape Fear Literacy Council. So I taught ESL um, to refugees as they were newly arriving for five years. And then I had um, the wonderful opportunity to work within the Resettlement Agency for Interfaith Refugee Ministry. I was the employment and resource developer, so I uh, got to advocate for refugees and help them become self-sufficient through employment and learning budgeting and finances and all that in the U.S. So. Um, because we stopped resettling in Wilmington around 2017 to 2018, um, the refugees here have been you know, very successful and independent, so we have been offering empowerment and enrichment and just sort of the bare minimum support to make sure that there are no homeless cases or real serious situations that refugees find themselves in by themselves. She is truly a warrior. One of those people who we look at in our community and go, she saw a problem, she stepped in, and even when the interfaith ministries kind of unraveled, um, yeah, they, dissolved, they here. dissolved here, she said, we're not dissolving, I'm still here. And that was very yeah, exciting. And um, So tell us, recently we were talking about all that was happening in Afghanistan. We, we did, we talked about... Um, um, extremism yes. in, in religions, mm-hmm. um, Christianity, but also in other religions mm-hmm. and how that uh, creates uh, issues in the world. And a part of that issue that comes out of 
all of this extremism um, is um, people get displaced. People get moved from one place to another. Um, and there are a lot of reasons why people become refugees uh, and where they end up. Uh, in that in that space and I want to before we get too far into this conversation to make a distinction between um, just immigrants Mm -hmm. um, and especially those who are coming over our southern border Um, I think that all of that get I mean some of those are indeed refugees um, but some are just people who are, are seeking a better life and they come over the border in in that way and so I think that it's important to to make a distinction Um, between um, anyone from another country who is coming here and refugees. Uh, And so maybe uh, almost giving it a definition of what is a refugee and and why that matters. Absolutely. That's an important starting point. And the sort of universal definition that the humanitarian field operates from is that you're a displaced person because of persecution, violence, or war that puts your rights life at risk. Um, So there's an interesting caveat in that definition that's kind of easy to overlook, which is that you have to leave the border of your home country to officially become a refugee. And that is much easier said than done. So right now, um, well, I'll start by giving you some figures. Uh, The 2020 report from the UN Refugee Agency, which is UNHCR, Um, predicts around 82.4 million displaced people um, around the world. So to break that number down for you, um, actually the number of refugees is 5 million less than what it was in the last five years. So that trend is down, but that doesn't necessarily give you an accurate picture because there's 5.7 million Palestinian refugees and 3.9 million Venezuelan refugees. And um, I'm not trained or experienced enough, but that's a whole other conversation that's mm-hmm. kind of conflicting that they're classified as their own type of refugee. Um, and then in addition to that, there are 4.1 million asylum seekers, so they're sort of at the beginning process of trying to get refugee status. Um, asylum seekers are people who are facing danger or at risk in their home country. And then this number is very startling to me, it has risen a lot, and this was before the last month or two in Afghanistan there are 48 million internally displaced people around the world. Um, And that number is larger, or almost half of that 82 million. And so it's tough because those people trapped in their home countries still, um, they're hard to access. It's hard to reach them to offer humanitarian support. And um, it's also just as hard to get research and to make policy to support them. On a personal note about what she just said, I have two host daughters here that have been here for years from Afghanistan. And what's happened recently is they have been cut off from their families in Afghanistan. So imagine, you know, they're young women the same age as my daughter and they're like daughters to me. But imagine all of a sudden not only not being able to talk on the cell phone or email or text your mother or father, while at the same time your mother and father's lives are in danger. And when you are born and raised there and have walked through what happened the last time um, the Taliban and the extremists, and there's a difference, we talked about that before, kind of took over, they experienced that. And one of their fathers was actually jailed for being an educator. So they've experienced that, and now they can't even send an email 
or have a conversation with not only just their mother or father, but their entire family. So the numbers are massive and the personal stories for each of that are heartbreaking. And you know, sorry to interrupt okay. you, Gail, okay. but that's actually what we see a lot with our um, clients here that are resettling in Wilmington from Burma as well. Mm-hmm. So it's really refugees from all over the world in situations where they're cut off from their family and the internet's cut off and your human rights are kind of taken away. It's re-traumatizing. So, so my question, um, so when, when I hear the word refugee, when when I think about that, you know, I'm a good Southern American, um, and so what I think of is people in tents, um, just on the other side of their board, the border of their home country, who have been displaced and um, end up being there for a long period of time, uh, or a short period of time, you know. But you you hear it's the stories. Yeah, but it seems years, seems really. to always be a, a long period of time, um, and so that's what we, when when I think refugee, um, that's what I think of um, these tent cities that are, um, and uh, I, I don't necessarily think of someone who's down the street or someone who's across town, and so I think that that making that that point that uh, it's not just refugees who are in some country somewhere else uh that we you know these are people who are coming into our community coming into um our our our, uh, sphere uh, the place where we live and so then how how do we um you know and I'll, i'll admit my sin here um, of looking at people who are speaking a foreign language in a store and whether I say it out loud or think it just in my head, you know, speak English, damn it. Um, you know, I mean, that's where I'm at. Um, not now, but I have been. Uh, where it's just like, I, I want you to become like me. Um, and um, that's not necessarily what we're doing with people who are coming here as refugees. Yeah, it's so easy to forget that we all come from different walks of life, especially like you say, when we're in our neighborhood or community that we're very familiar with, and you can forget the diversity and that maybe not everyone that is in your neighborhood is grown up in the U.S. or in Wilmington or nearby. So it's very, very challenging um, for the refugees to resettle, but language is one of the biggest obstacles. And unfortunately, our brains are wired so that when we're older, it is much more difficult to learn a new language. And then you have to take into account that some of these refugees are illiterate in their native language, or maybe their native language is just so much different and so much simpler that a lot of concepts aren't even really translatable. Mm -hmm. Um, So we see that a lot, but the refugees to become a citizen after five years here do have to take the uh, citizenship test in English. So it is a goal that we work towards with all of our refugees. And I'll talk later this um, program about ways volunteers can help with that as well. So, so they have to become they have to become literate in English. I mean, so the test is given a you written test to become a citizen. Yes. Okay. Um, there's very few circumstances. Um, basically, severe medical or health issues could possibly help you get around that. Um, but also for employment purposes, um, language is very important to integrate when you start a new home in a new country. But it is very very challenging. So. 
I, I often, I went to school in Barcelona and one of the things I realized through that experience, and we learned through our experience more than we do through book learning, um, was how hard it was for me just to do average tasks. And I had years of Spanish, but I was in a place where there was that different type of Spanish. And then you also, when you go somewhere, it's not the book language. It is the colloquialisms, the slang. Um, and so I felt like a complete idiot and so lost and confused and what I realized were the people who come who I come in contact with like my host daughters from Afghanistan don't just speak one language they speak three or four in American English which is what they have to speak here especially in the south the southern American English is their fifth language and it's one of the most complex and confusing because we steal from every other language to create ours and so and my instinct when I was young was to think they are not as smart or as intelligent, but now I realize they are so much smarter and yeah. mm-hmm. wiser than I am because they're able to grasp concepts that not only change through the way we speak, but also change through the way we represent our culture, the way we live out through our faith, through everything. They are just, there are so many obstacles to being scooped up from where you live and dropped into a place that are unimaginable. Yeah, and I love, you kind of touch on the idea of reframing our perspectives. And, you know, um, to go back to what Gail was saying just real quickly about refugee camps, I kind of always lived under this misinterpretation that they're in a refugee camp, they're safe. But they're not. And then coupled with that, the level of impoverty in those camps is truly just something you do not see in a developed country. And so when they resettle here and we talk about housing being expensive or affordable housing being in a bad part of town, you have to remember that their perspective on poverty and poor living conditions is very different than how we define it as Americans. Um, But more importantly, going back to labels and perspectives, uh, this past World Refugee Day, this June 19th, uh, every year in the globally actually it's recognized and the theme this year was kind of a quote and it was to be a refugee is a badge of courage and Mm -hmm. honor and resilience and i think it's so important that we kind of reframe the connotations that we have just with the terminology refugee um, is not somebody that's super poor uneducated there's a lot of highly educated people that are forced to resettle that speak numerous languages and have multiple master's degrees and all of a sudden their whole life is stripped away from them and they're in a foreign country with a different language. So of course it might be easy to judge them quickly. Oh, they should learn our language Mm -hmm. or they're not as smart because they're in this situation. Um, So it's up to us to help spread the word and support immigrants and refugees Um, to help them, empower them, and really let them reach their full potential after they've gone through so much. And I think that that's another topic. I mean, we could spend a long time on this idea that um, people are in a situation because of something they did, some some Mm -hmm. sin of their own or sin of the Father kind of thing that that calls them to be in this situation, and that's just rarely the truth. Um, There's just so many different layers of how you end up being in that situation. Absolutely. One of the things that we've talked about several times is whatever community you're involved in, um, from immigrants or refugees or people of different color or people of different gender persuasion, one of the easiest ways to start 
understanding is through personal connections mm-hmm. and through experience. So one of the reasons we invited Kat here today is to give all of us ways that we can have that personal experience. The thing that motivated her to jump headfirst into this new life. Um, and she's going to give us some ways and resources that we can kind of jump into what she's doing in a very small way and maybe educate and change our hearts and minds, but also truly help those in this world. Well, and I think that you're also going to give us information, not just for our local Wilmington community, um, because, I mean, we live in the Wilmington, North Carolina area, but you could be listening to this from anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, according to our statistics, someone's listening in Germany. So, hey, Germany. Um, but, um, um you know, so how can people help uh, uh, in a myriad of ways, not just in our local community, but also yeah. uh, throughout the state and throughout the country? That's a great question. Um, I'm going to start just by really quickly briefing sort of an update on what's going on in Afghanistan in regards to refugee resettlement, um, because it is slightly different. And then I'll move into ways to help, starting with policy asks. So if you're in the United States, Um, anywhere in the U.S. you can reach out to your Congress um, members and your governors as well Um, and we'll give links to do that with messaging toolkits and things like that and then I'll get into specific ways that you can help in Wilmington Um, but that applies really for wherever you are there's most likely a refugee resettlement agency somewhere within your vicinity so I encourage you if you're not in the Wilmington area to Google refugee resettlement agency in your town name, and um, it will apply. Everything that I offer, you can provide to your town as well. Um, So I mentioned in the definition that for a refugee, you have to leave your home country's border. Well, with the situation in Afghanistan, it wasn't feasible. It was very obvious to our military and our government that that was not going to be an option. Um, And the reason that this is significant and why we have to care is that um, we're using the term refugees right now, Afghan refugees, but really, I like to almost think of these people, many of them as veterans, um, that were Afghan nationals working for the U.S. military, um, interpreters, uh, people working for U.S. grant-funded projects, people working for U.S. NGOs in Afghanistan. Um, and you had to have worked for over a year with a U.S.-based project or military to qualify, um, and that's for the special immigrant visas, SIVs. And then um, I, there's Congress opened up just a month ago, August 23rd, they passed legislation so that we could offer what they're calling P1 and P2 pathways for our Afghan allies. So we're calling them Afghan refugees, but these are allies that have worked to support the United States and in doing so put them and their families' lives at risk. Um, So that's really a significant major difference than everything we've ever done when we resettle refugees for a lot of reasons. Um, So if you saw in the news, a lot of these Afghans have been taken to military bases, U.S. bases around the world. That's why they have to get outside of their border to finish their process of background checks and security clearances and health clearances to actually be qualified to become a refugee. So it's kind of sad that that first step is such a huge effort. Um, so so I, I just want to, like, I want to hit that point really yeah. hard right here because I think that a lot of us don't realize um, what it takes to become a refugee 
coming into the United States. And so I, I want you to list those again. So it was was a health check and a, a background check. It's all through Homeland Department of Homeland Security. There's uh, international organizations, United Nations as well, doing the background checks. But it's a traumatic experience. These refugees relive the trauma that they had lived through and survived. And it goes down to doctors measuring and photographing scars or bruises or injuries. Um, and it's a political process because it's all done through Congress in the United States and sometimes you'll see that if it takes longer, like for example, from 2017 to 2021, the Refugee Resettlement Program was very, uh, almost squashed. We went from resettling about 100,000 refugees a year nationally to 15,000. Wow. So those people that had gone through five, seven years of clearance checks, it expires. So then they have to start back over. And I mentioned five years earlier, but truthfully, I would say seven to 15 years is probably more accurate for how long refugees spend in the camps. And um, I hate to say that those are the lucky ones, but I do have a lot of clients right now, Wilmington, um, they're now American citizens, but they have relatives still in Burma that are absolutely in a persecution, uh, human rights violation situation, but they can't even fathom getting out. You know, they would starve on their run across the border, but more importantly, the military right now has a coup in Burma. So um, the process to even getting to resettlement is traumatic. And then, you know, starting a new life in a foreign country is just as challenging. So um, there's just hurdle after hurdle. And so now the situation that we're in, uh, because Wilmington, our office for the government resettlement had closed down, we have been working with Church World Services Durham. They're known as CWS Durham. So two weeks ago they reached out and asked if Wilmington could maybe help support Afghan resettlement. Um, and I didn't say this at the beginning, but I should mention that the only way refugee resettlement and global connections is successful is through community support. I mean, Wilmington has a huge heart, and that was what we saw when we worked with refugees here for eight or nine years before global connections. So being able to respond to church world services, specifically that we can accept five families of four instantly, um, it's really m meaningful. We're helping you know, humanitarian rescue efforts here. So um, it's not to be little, the value in that, but also... Um, it's the I, people. Can, and here's the thing. Wilmington has had the experience of walking through with and changing people's lives and seeing the other side. But if you are in a small town in West Virginia or Alabama or wherever you are, it's opening your heart first that makes it possible. Opening your heart and saying, I'm going to try to do what I can do. Because without people that do that, Kat and their connections can't do what they do. We have to have a soft place for people to land. Well, I think that, that it's an important point to say that uh, community is what makes all of this work. And not just community with um, individual people. Um, you know, I mean, we all make community. We all make friends and, and draw in people that we consider family or, or we consider our inner circle or whatever and building that community. But community between organizations. Yes. And so it's not just um, an individual creating community, but organizations com creating community that work. And I think that's where uh, religious organizations come alongside. 
uh, in being able to, to do this work is that uh, it's not just individuals it's not just what you do but what does what does your community the community that you've built in your religious community in your uh, friend community what are you doing and how are you uh, leveraging your assets to be able to do that absolutely yeah so where we're at now is um, around 75,000 Afghans Afghan refugees will be um, resettling through the United States. We honestly expected this to be starting within the last two weeks, um, but this is new territory for everybody, for Congress, for the resettlement agencies, for the refugees themselves, and so they are taking longer than they expected at the bases to do the processing. Um, but everybody that is at a base right now had actually applied for refugee status before the Kabul takeover. So these are allies that have known for a while that they were going to need to leave. But um, when we left on August 31st, um, there were at least an estimated 65,000 allies, not just refugees, but allies that were left behind. I've seen that number actually estimated closer to 225,000. Um, and then they, the reports from the U.S. resettlement agencies are that there are really 1.1 million others who could and should be evacuated. Um, so right now we're preparing just for a huge influx. And we used to have a week's notice. We would get a case at an office and you had a week to say if you could accept it or not. And then it would be typically anywhere from 24 hours to a week when they would arrive. Um, but now we have 24 hours to accept a case. So we could be given just a 48 hour notice that we're gonna get a family of four or a family of five and that they're here. And this is gonna go back to where communities are gonna be a very integral part of this refugee resettlement um, kind of reprogramming, if you will, because of their different immigrant statuses. Um, so when you say 24 hours, I'm sitting here and my heart's big, especially when it comes to Afghanistan. So my first inclination is, well, they can just come live with me. I have some extra room. You know, they can just come stay at my house and I will, you know, you just want to step up and you want to do anything you can. But that's not the way it works. Actually, it is now. <gasps> <laughs> Can you believe it? Oh my goodness! Because I know back it, you is couldn't that even... dire. Oh my it's, goodness! That's actually in my notes today, um, oh. and I'm shocked. You know, I've I am been doing too. this for five years or more, and um, I've never seen such a need. And it makes sense because they created P1 and P2 pathways in the SIV immigration. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Can we say P1, P2? Like, can you tell me what that is? Yeah, so that is SIV, the special immigrant visas, were for people who worked with the U.S. government, interpreters, military, NGOs, or U.S. grant-funded projects for over a year is how you qualify to be a refugee without leaving the border. Actually, you do have to leave the border mm -hmm. still for these immigrant statuses. Um, P1 and P2 was what Congress created on August 23rd because they realized the severity of this human rights crisis. And essentially it offers an SIV to those same groups of people, the allies, but that did it for less than a year. Okay. Oh, good. Um, and so it's good, but we can't exactly keep up with our policy as quickly as the needs. And so right now where we're at is we're trying to get um, Congress and the White House to approve giving the SIVs and the P1 and P2 immigrants access to more services, social services and financial support in their initial resettlement. So, so let's go back to this. Uh, you get 24 hours notice that P1 
people are coming and you get to say I have a place for them or I don't so the way that I imagine that that works is that you're you are currently looking for places that people can go um, so whether that is a, a, an independent living situation or as Kelly has now offered um, <laughs> like I, I heard that offer I mean I'm well, just saying and, well we've but, tried before I've offered that before and I was told you can't do that. So, yeah, but but you're but you're now looking for people who are willing to say I am willing to take someone into my home, or you're looking for someone who says I have a place that I'm willing to have someone stay, and then you you have those on the books that the, they're available. Yes. Um, so housing is our the most urgent need for Afghan resettlement across the United States um, because there is a crisis of affordable housing and especially in safe neighborhoods and areas. So the goal right now is to find ideally short-term or long-term housing, but given the reality of the situation, temporary housing as well. Um, so once these refugees are getting out of the military bases, they'll fly to the cities that they're going to resettle in. Um, at that point, there's a few options that resettlement agencies are organizing for community members to really be on the front lines. Um, so co-sponsorship is really sort of the largest way to be involved as an uh, organization or an individual that forms a team, sort of like an organizational team. So it's, um, it allows North Carolina neighbors to be on the front lines of welcoming refugees home um, to their new neighborhoods. So, so what I heard in that, and so I'm just going to say it back to you so you yeah. can say, nope, you're wrong. Um, but what I heard in that is that, so like a church... Or an organization could say we're going, we're willing to adopt, uh, for sponsor. lack of for la- yeah. sponsor. That's probably a better word. But we're going to take in this refugee family, and we're going to make sure that they have some place to stay. Exactly. Um, at least from 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 the start, um, we're going to help them to get settled. And so it doesn't necessarily have to be an individual like mm-hmm. Kelly, uh, who's willing to say, come into my house, but it could be an organization or a group of people who say, we're going to make sure that this person uh, has a place to stay and is, is taken care of for, what's my length yeah. of time? Yes, there? yes. So four to six months is the commitment that they're looking for for okay. co-sponsor teams. And um, just to go back to the idea of churches offering temporary housing in the past, that hasn't been common, but they are trying to find ways to maybe provide that as an alternative, just because 75,000 people is a lot of people. And yeah. I mean, remember 100,000 a year was what we were doing before the funding stopped in 2017 for a lot of these agencies. So they have, even the agencies that survived that are very small or much smaller than they were and they have less budget. So that's where communities like us are so integral to making this successful. Um, and Airbnb is actually offering stipends. So if you open your home or even a room, if you have space at your house, a room, that is what they're looking for right now. Um, we do expect that most of them, at least in Wilmington, will be families. But for individuals that are single, that would be a really helpful option. Um, and even potentially, you know, hotels for short term while we're setting up longer term housing. Um, so that's the biggest priority. So the co-sponsorships, they're looking for teams of eight to ten people um, to commit to supporting an Afghan family for four to six months. Um, I think the most notable within that expectation is there is a financial commitment. 
So um, in a, I think it would be an ideal situation if you had a landlord or someone on your welcome team that might have housing that, that they own that they can provide affordably. Or someone who owns an Airbnb, possibly. Exactly. But if not, then... Um, you can fundraise. So it's about a $5,000 commitment estimated for four, six months rent and utilities. Um, so the idea would be to have the teams that are able to combine and commit that. Um, but it's also support. So mentorship, um, friendship, <laughs> I think is really important not to underlook at the value of a good friend, but um, helping with ESL, learning to use the bus, the library, things like that, cultural orientation kind of, um, helping with budgeting, shopping at a grocery store can be really nerve-wracking, um, you know, trying to pay your first bill or check out for your first time if you don't speak the language. So those are all ways. Or just understand what it is you're buying. And I'm going to you know? jump in here. Um, we love our churches, yeah. and, but we have a history in our churches of trying to colonize trying to turn people into christians so if you are um if you have a church that is interested in doing this understand and this is very important that this is not a chance for you to turn someone into a christian you have to be willing to not only accept the person where they're coming from and accept their faith but to learn and understand that faith and the differences. Um, one of the biggest hardships for many people who want to take in refugees is there is a massive cultural difference. And it can be as simple as when I was grocery shopping, I had to go to halal markets. I had to find where they are, which they're limited to get um, to make sure that the um, groceries I was buying were, you know, good for the children I was bringing into my home, the young women I was bringing into my home, but also separating my desire to show people Christ with my desire to be Christ in this world. There are two big differences. So I do want to step in, love churches that are stepping up, but make sure your church or your group of people is doing it for the right reasons, not doing it for your own reasons. I just want yeah, to yeah, that, that can't be emphasized enough, and that's actually going to be part of our volunteer training as well. Um, Very good. So, so we have this group of people, and they say, "Okay, I want to do it. We've raised the money, or we have a place. What's the next step?" Um, yeah, so at that point, you would want to reach out to us at Global Connections. Um, we are on Facebook and Instagram as Global Connections on Facebook, Global Refugee Connections on Instagram. Um, our website is uh, globalrefugeeconnections.org. You can sign up there or email us through there if you have a team together. Um, or our email address is globalconnectionsilm at gmail.com. And then after you connect with us, we would schedule training and do background checks. And then, again, this could be really, we expect it to be fast moving. So we want to have people on the ground ready and trained. Um, for as soon as we get that call that they're going to start traveling here. Um, but that's really a different setup than what I've done yes, <laughs> for refugee resettlement in the different. past. And I didn't realize that till this week that that was where the situation was. Um, so in the past, we had welcome teams. And essentially, it was the same thing as co-sponsorship, but without a financial commitment. Um, and so I might need to revamp <laughs> the forms that we used to use to mm -hmm. sign up for a welcome team. Um, but I think that we may have potential in Wilmington to, if you have interest to be fully involved, but maybe you can't provide all of that money, or maybe you have housing and it's just affordable, but you can't provide all of the cost for it. 
Um, we might be doing a large community fundraiser. Everything is still unfolding and emerging, so our plans are still grouping together. But it's my hope um, that our community has stepped up so much that we can help these co-sponsor teams. So for example, furnishing the house is part of that um, commitment. And so welcome teams, they do furnishing the apartments and stocking it with groceries before they arrive. Um, so I'm hoping, and I think we will, be able to provide donated furniture through Global Connections. Um, and you might be able to get housing stipends as our uh, institutions are realizing how to support this. So as she's talking in Wilmington, she's explaining the process here, but this is the same in small towns across the country. If you go to your refugee services, you can kind of expect the same picture, although they vary depending on where you live or what type of refugees we're talking about. But in this fast-moving process across the country, this is needed. Yes. Um, one of the, I'm just going to step in here, one of the things that CAD has done is have a warehouse or a storage facility. We have enough of those here in Wilmington. I think we have more storage facilities than we do affordable housing. Yes. But um, they have a storage facility that they just keep stocked. So with things that a house needs, think about what, when you moved into your first apartment. So uh, one of the ways to help is either to rent a storage facility permanently for your refugee center if they need that or help them stock places so that all of this stuff isn't something we have to go out and find in 24 hours. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we do have our own warehouse, so it would just be collecting donations. But I do have that, and this is a talking point across the United States and truthfully probably around the world. But faith communities can host donation drives um, for furniture to help furnish the apartments, um, but also hosting fundraisers for housing support, a specific financial drive for housing for Afghan refugees. Um, but also offering support through volunteering and mentorship, um, and then the temporary housing, if it's in your home or possibly in a church, would be a big way to make a positive difference. And I just want to jump in and say that, that we will be putting links to all of these websites they were talking about, all of these ways that you can connect, uh, not just in Wilmington, but across the country, uh, you know, more uh, 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 universal um, groups. Uh, we'll be putting that information in the show notes for this uh, for this show, so you'll be able to just click on that link and and make that connection. So you don't have to be jotting all this down, y'all. <laughs> Thank you. That's very helpful. Um, I'll, I'll include a link as well through Church World Services that has um, message outlines to send Congress. Uh, if you call them on the phone, it has a script as well and just other toolkits available so that you can help spread the word. Um, because awareness is sort of, while we're sitting here in limbo, that is kind of part of the work that we need to be doing, is asking our representatives to um, open up opportunities for Afghans to receive more services. Some well, of, well, some so of those are as easy as, I know when we've done things in the past, is clicking to send a postcard, clicking to send an email, and they give you what needs to be said. You don't have to be well-versed in this. But... 1,000 postcards, 1,000 emails saying something to your representative from across your constituency changes people's minds because they are wanting to get reelected. Yeah. So you don't have to have the right verbiage. They'll give you the verbiage. You just have to have the five seconds to copy, paste, and send. Yeah, and you can even do a little postcard party. <laughs> Go out to a park yes. and sit down with some friends. And or a bar. See how, yeah, exactly. And see how many postcards that you can have. Um, go out you would obviously need to recruit people that want to send them and then you essentially have your team make them 
and then people just sign it, and then you can send it out in bulk. Well, I think another part of that is is education. Um, you know, I think that we've all learned here today um, more about what it is to be a refugee and, um, you know, uh, and sharing that gospel, you know, sharing that, uh, that news that this is what I have learned uh, about refugees and about people who are coming to Wilmington or coming to my town, wherever that is, and, uh, and sharing that with your friends. I mean, I imagine that we all have uh, friends who think of this in a way that is uh, not uh, not realistic. Not well, it's not it's not real. Yeah. You know, um, it's it's the false dichotomy that it, that just keeps being spread about people who are coming to our you know taking over our country kind of stuff. Um, and you know, spreading the news, spreading the the this is really what's happening here, y'all. Yeah, and it's important to remember, I think that refugee resettlement is almost always a last option or a last choice the people that are resettling it wasn't what they wanted they would have preferred to stay in their home communities with their families and their ancestor roots and their culture so um it's really not their desire to be on a there. on a personal note um the my i have two hostors but there is a group of young ladies actually that are vibrant part of our nation right now and all citizens but this is not where they wanted to grow up. They actually wanted to come to the United States for education and go back and change their communities, go back and change Afghanistan. And some of them who went back are now in this refugee status and are lost. But their hope was not to be here. Their hope was to be home where they got to see their nieces and nephews grow up, where they got to be with their grandmother and take care of her in their older age, where they got to raise their children the same way they were raised. So this isn't, I want to come to America and live the American dream. This is, I have no other choice for the safety for my life. One of them actually had to issue a death warrant in Afghanistan because she had an arranged marriage and her family was going to be persecuted for not living up to that standard. So she can never go back to her home. And you need to kind of wrap your head around the idea that this is not their dream. This is where they are stuck. And if you can make it a little bit better, yeah. just Tragic. a tiny bit, bit better, then you are doing a good thing. And I forgot, I, I'm going to backtrack a little bit, but with this immigration titles that we've used today, I've said refugees, SIVs, P1, and P2. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also another term, which is uh, a parolee. And it's sort of a terrible <laughs> term yes. for an immigrant staff yeah, it because is. it's what we call felons when they get mm-hmm. out of jail as well. So the connotations there are just negative from the get-go. Yeah. But um, that's sort of part of the conflict right now is that we've given a lot of Afghans an escape through this status as parolees, but they don't receive any financial support and really no government-funded social services. So in the links that we'll be sharing out, um, you'll see things about offering support to P1 and P2s and SIVs, but a lot of the legislation, um, specifically the Afghan Adjustment Act, it will um, have Congress pass legislation to allow Afghan parolees who are being evacuated from Afghanistan to have an opportunity to seek legal permanent residence. So parolees, when they come here, um, they're not guaranteed that they'll be able to stay here. So, you know, it's kind of traumatic to move overseas, temporarily build a new life, and then that's taken away from you because the immigration status couldn't keep up with the needs of our Afghan allies. 
So I, I just want to be clear that, that the use of the term parolee mm-hmm. here has nothing to do with their legal, their criminal uh, their criminal background, but has to do with the fact that um, they're being uh, resettled uh, in the United States, but are not coming with any uh, attached services. Yes, and I think part of it may be that there's not enough, we can't process the background checks and the mm-hmm. security clearances fast enough We have the 75,000 refugees. I mentioned there were 65,000 being left behind still. So some of those people might end up going a route of asylum seeker or becoming a parolee and then hoping that we open up new avenues for them to become a citizen or to at least get services. So the ones who are coming as parolees have not gone through the background check? They they have gone through background checks, but as far as validating the persecution, um, they can't. They don't do all of that process, but they're definitely vetted. Every immigrant that comes so, as an asylum seeker is... This brings so many questions for me. So, so validating... Sounds horrible. So, so uh, like that, that term... You, you can s- you imagine... Validating persecution. I think we have some listeners that can imagine having to validate their persecution right. across different things yes. that happen in the United Abs- States. Absolutely. But, so, but, but, that but, is, I, but, but I mean... Oh my so that term right there, validating your persecution, um, like you have to prove that you were persecuted. And, and like ways of doing that, uh, you know, I mean, there's so many ways that people are persecuted. Um, and and frequently not the people who scream that they're persecuted. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, I mean, so you, like we have to name that, right? That um, there's so many... Um, privileged white upper class people who are just like I'm being persecuted. And I'm like, yeah, you're, no, you're not. And even climate refugees are technically not within, and I don't fully understand it. I always thought they did classify as a refugee, but being pushed out of your home because of the threat of weather or climate mm-hmm. is actually very different than persecution and war. But it does kind of make you wonder in the larger conversation. You started by talking about economic incentives to immigrate, and really. I don't think it's appropriate to give a negative connotation to any of them or to mm-hmm. say these people are more validated to come to my country than that mm-hmm. person. I feel like the United States was founded and the church has this open door, open heart philosophy that yes. we are a beacon of hope. So um, just remember that even if they're an asylum seeker or a parolee or just an immigrant looking for opportunity to work, um, they're all deserving and they all bring wonderful traits to our communities on a pastor note i'm gonna say god created our entire planet for his entire family everyone that was created in their image has been given this beautiful garden to live in and i'm big on not having those borders that separate god's family but that's just like a weird christian perspective that sometimes (laughs) us pastors throw out part of our World Refugee Day motto, so shared humanity, and then we have it in, uh, I think it's Kinyarwanda Ubuntu, it means the same thing, I am through you, um, and then uh, todos unos, mm-hmm. I'm not very good with Spanish, oh, but yes. we are all one, all one. so um, I think it's more or less all kind of saying that same thing, which is we're all shared very much in common through our humanity. And if we can put our politics aside and our judgments aside. And sometimes um, our religion aside. Yeah, that we can make really amazing things happen for each other just by reaching out and helping one another. I'm going to 
I don't know where we're at. We've been just kind of lost in this conversation. Um, I want to, on another pastor note, read a quote by um, Bishop Spong, who passed away recently. Um, He was an Episcopalian bishop who was integral in my faith. His books have been integral in my faith. But he said, God is not a Christian. God is not a Jew or a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist. All of those are human systems which human beings have created to try to help us walk into the mystery of God. I honor my tradition. I walk through my tradition. But I don't think my tradition defines God. I think it only points to God. I think our purpose in our podcast Our purpose in having these hard conversations is understanding that God is bigger than we can imagine. And when we're trying to reach out and love each other, these are ways you can physically and emotionally, these are ways you can actually do it in real life. You can just not talk from our pulpits or from our place of comfort, but we can actually do something in real life. And I think that is vital. Yeah, and I think even just having the difficult conversations. Um, In one of the webinars this week with the National Resettlement Agencies, uh, when somebody asked about references for books or things to um, read or watch to help them understand or to talk with neighbors or maybe family members who disagree with refugee resettlement, um, they recommended the documentary, I think it was Purple America, We Need to Talk. And so I just wanted to share that with you all because I think it's a really beautiful point which is that we can go broader you know we just need to learn how to talk to people about topics that we don't want to talk about Mm -hmm. and we need to get comfortable talking about uncomfortable things and um, talking to people who have different points of view from us so that we can all learn where we're coming from and try to make the world a better place through listening. I mean, I think that we all we all are comfortable in our own echo chamber. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like we get very comfortable in hearing the same thing that we think being spouted by someone else. Um and and that idea of being comfortable having conversations about things that make us uncomfortable. Um is is it's where we're at and and i think that unfortunately in the last uh, five six years Mm -hmm. uh, we really have uh, become far less willing to do that Uh, we've become far less willing to listen and that's that's not just my conservative friends who feel that way it's my liberal friends Mm -hmm. who feel that way you know a lot of my liberal friends um you know if you believe this, then leave my Facebook. If you believe this, then leave my sphere. If you believe whatever, you know, like, don't even come around me. Don't even come spewing your mess. With the religious extremism, With, you're set on one idea. Yes. That's sort of the red flag. But I mean, but that's true on either side of that, you know. So, I mean, I hear that from my conservative friends. I hear that from my liberal friends. Don't. Don't bring your other opinion near me. And I'm just like, dude, I want to hear it all. Mm-hmm. You know, like I want to hear everyone's opinion. I don't have to agree with you, but I so want to hear it. And I think that that's an important thing to remember as we have this conversation is that you don't have to agree with it, but listening and trying to understand is an important beginning point. Yes. And Truly, lives are at stake here. This isn't about you being uncomfortable talking to your neighbor. This is about millions upon millions of people whose lives are in peril. And I don't care what side you're on. If you're not willing to step up to 
save someone's life, to provide them with safety, the most basic of human needs. I think that you're, I don't even know. I can't even imagine. I can't even fathom. So as, is there anything else that you want to leave us with? We'll have links we're going to have, especially I'm going to go home and watch this documentary because I need to learn more about our Purple America. But is there anything you want to leave us with, any wisdom? It's so easy to get hung up in the politics, but historically this has been a bipartisan uh, field in the United States. Since the 1960s, we have averaged about 75,000 refugees a year and we've kind of always been a global leader. Countries follow in our footsteps. So if we're resettling a lot, you'll see other countries are resettling more. The last four years when we were hardly resettling, other countries mirrored that. So um, just try to, again, keep an open mind, but also just try to take the politics out of it and think about this from a humanitarian rescue effort, I guess is the note that I would like to Absolutely. leave this conversation with. So I want to say that, um, you know, I'm, I'm older than, than either of you, and uh, I remember... Uh, in the 60s, watching the fall of Saigon is like the most um, impressionable thing that I could ever name. Like, what was the news story that impressed you, you know, that had the biggest uh, impression on you? And for me, it was the fall of Saigon. Uh, Watching people uh, hanging on the outside of planes as they were taking off. Watching people um, in this place of devastation. It, it impacted me greatly um, in, in watching that as a child. And watching, um, watching the, uh, the planes li- leaving yeah. out of, uh, uh, I, I say Kabul, yeah. but you said Kabul. I always said it wrong. So I, 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 I'm unsure how to say the name of the place, but um, Kabul, Kabul, wh- how, however it is pronounced, uh, watching those planes take off. It was so flashback for me. You're exactly right. It was 100% like, and um, I said that the very first day I watched it, and then uh, started hearing news stories that were echoing that. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I'm not the only one who sees this as being exactly the same and has exactly that same feeling. And so I you know, had those feelings when I was a child watching that, and that uh, impacted me greatly. It, it's impacted me greatly watching this. And they so, actually do compare it. This is, um, yeah. they've used the term historical precedent. Yes. They're saying they haven't seen a number of influx like this of refugees yes. since Vietnam. I mean, it, uh, you know, it, it looked exactly the same it's to exactly me. And um, I know that, you know, a lot of, of the, the people that I know are, are vets of the Vietnam War who are, um, uh, you know, whether they were protesters or, or over there fighting. There's a lot of understanding of what it was like to be a part of that culture, and I think that we're we're seeing this happen again. And at some point in time, we're going to have to step up to stop this from happening over and over. Where we need to resettle people, where we need to uh, look at the political unrest and what it is doing in people's lives, and you know, it's complex. It's it's multi generational. Some of these conflicts, like in Burma, they've been going on for centuries. Yeah, so, and obviously lots of other countries. So and it's it's a whole lot. It's a whole it's a lot. whole lot to take in. But if you're listening, my encouragement is to spend 30 minutes this week, set aside just a half hour, not much time, to either look into this documentary or look just a little bit deeper into what some of the resources that we're giving you. I know sometimes projects or ideas seem so big 
that you just want to look away and that seems easier but it's not because it will be inside of you so just 30 minutes just give yourself a little start dive in and find something simple whether it is donating an item of furniture or getting with a group of friends and donating some money or sending a postcard do something this week to make a difference and i think that that's important to 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 recognize that i mean yes this is a historic thing this is unprecedented uh we haven't seen it you know in the last 50 years or or ever how long and and here we are seeing this uh, happen again and you can be a part of it you can be a part of the solution and um so being a part of the solution is really where we're calling you to be Uh, is to come and be a part of the solution to this global issue. Yeah, thank you. So just on the ending note, um, some of the most needed items are mattresses, dining sets, dressers, blankets, pillows, sheets, and towels. Um, Other items that would stock the kitchen, like plates, silverware, cups, uh, crock pot, things like that are also very, very helpful. Um, and then one last recommendation is a movie. It's actually a Reese Witherspoon movie. Ooh. It's just called The Good Lie, but uh, she's an employment uh, specialist for a refugee resettlement agency. So you just kind of see it's a really easy watch and it's kind of funny. Um, and you can get an inside look on what it's like to resettle. Um, I say it's funny, but it's also very realistic. You know, they don't know how to flush a toilet sometimes or the faucet with running water. These are all brand new things to mm-hmm. some people. So um, it's a good eye-opener. If you're totally new in this um, field or with refugee resettlement, it's a good movie to watch. So we definitely will have links to all of these things in the show notes so that you can, can watch all of it. We're going to be busy adding We're going to be busy adding all the same. <laughs> we appreciate so, it. So thank you, Kat, for coming with us. Again, the name of your organization is... Global Connections. Global Connections. And so um, thank you so much. And uh, we'll be sharing a lot of information about, thank about you your group. Thank you all for listening. We appreciate your support. Thank you. And we will see y'all next week. Yes, thank you.